Hello, and welcome to another episode of Where Was This in History Class? In our last episode, we discussed the importance of the Columbian Exchange, the Atlantic slave trade, and the importance of colonies as part of mercantilism in this larger trading system. In this episode, and in the next few episodes, we're going to break down the age of absolutism. I've gone back and forth as to what is the best way to do this. At first, I thought that it would be best to do a longer episode and try to cover all the nations in that single episode. But then I thought to myself that if if you, the listener, are trying to use this to study, then the best method would probably be to create different episodes for each nation or country that we're we're going to cover. This will uh, will allow me to break down the history, provide better stories, and it's going to make it easier for you to go back and study because all you have to do is select the episode of the nation that you need. So please feel free later on to check out the other episodes and go back and listen at your own convenience. So this is episode five of season one. The title of this episode is Spain kings and armadas oh my so and by the end of this this episode you should be able to explain the empire that charles v inherited you should be able to analyze whether or not philip ii should should be considered such a big deal and you should be able to explain why the spanish empire eventually begins to weaken all right so we're going to split this episode into three parts i'll let you know when we start and end a part so that you can use this to study or process as you need so let's get started so this brings us to part one Part one is titled, It's Good to Be the King. So the history of Spain's monarchy, at least for our purposes, is going to start with the marriage of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, which is going to bring together the largest kingdoms of of Spain, and it's going to unite them in what we consider the more modern nation of Spain. As we have also discussed, this is also going to mean that Spain could then focus on ending their crusade known as the Reconquista, which means the reconquest of Spain. This is considered to be Europe's longest running crusade. It lasts roughly 700 years. And as a result of the reconquest, Muslims and Jews are going to be forced to uh, either convert to Christianity, specifically Catholicism, or they're going to be forced to leave Spain. Remember this fact because it's going to come back to bite Spain in the in the butt. I almost cursed there, but I'm not going to. It, it's going to come to bite them in the butt later on. Right now, we're going to move to the year 1516, when Charles V becomes the king of Spain. So Charles V, uh, his family dynamics read like a soap opera, or for my students, like a, a normal Tuesday in school after you've checked out your friend's newest story on Instagram. So the next time you're at a family uh, holiday or get-together, please understand that other people in history have had family get-togethers and holidays that were way more awkward than yours, and that I promise you you're going to survive. So right now we're going to fast forward to 1519 to the next great moment in Charles's life, which is, uh, I hate to say this, but it's when his grandfather actually dies. So in 1519, Charles's grandfather, Emperor Maximilian I, is going to die. Emperor Maximilian had been the Holy Roman Emperor, which meant that he controlled the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was the area of land located in Central Europe and mainly focuses on the area that is modern-day Germany, as well as several other modern European nations. But if you can find Germany on a map, you have a pretty good idea of where the Holy Roman Empire was. If you feel more comfortable, do yourself a favor, pause this podcast, and then perform a quick search, uh, and and try to find a map of the Holy Roman Empire roughly around the time of the 1600s, and you have a pretty good idea of where it was. So to to back this up a little bit, the Holy Roman Empire, or as we're going to call it, the HRE, began when Emperor Charlemagne in the year 800 helps defend Pope Leo III. And as a result of this, he becomes known as the defender of the Catholic Church. As part of his reward, Pope Leo 
the third then crowns Charlemagne the first Holy Roman Emperor. The creation of this new territory was kind of like a, a marriage of convenience in the sense that Charlemagne, his empire needs the organizational skills and legitimacy that the church could bring into his French kingdoms. All right. So the, the priests are some of the only um, people who are literate in, in throughout Europe. Right. So their organizational skills are absolutely needed. At the same time, the church has also uh, already, I should say, demonstrated a need to have uh, a military that they can call on to protect them, specifically the Pope. So this, this marriage of convenience um, is going to serve both parties there, both Charlemagne as well as Pope Leo III or the church. So yeah, this, it's a marriage of convenience, but just remember that the, the divorce rate today is somewhere around 52%. So you can kind of think about what is going to happen in the future, okay? The, these marriages don't tend to last, all right? So uh, I tend to look at it like a, like a Disney love story, except that the princess is a powerful religious organization who needs saving, and that the prince is a French king who spends most of his life fighting wars and flirting with a lot of women. So, um, but we're going to move on. So Webster's Dictionary defines the Holy Roman Empire as an empire consisting primarily of a loose confederation of German and Italian territories under the control of an emperor, all right, and it's going to exist somewhere between the 9th or 10th century to 1806 when it finally is dissolved. However, I think my absolute favorite quote of the whole, uh, regarding the Holy Roman Empire is Voltaire's. Voltaire stated, quote, the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. As you study the history of the Holy Roman Empire, this quote will make even more sense. But just know that Voltaire is definitely definitely correct when he stated that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Now, we have to understand that the placement of the Holy Roman Empire when Charles V, uh, the, Charles V comes to power, um, because it's going to set up all of this, this drama that's going to happen later on in history. Now, normally I tell my students that uh, drama-free is, is the way to be. But when studying history, I say we, we take a deep dive into the drama. So the HRE at this point in the early 1500s is a completely separate empire, which means that it's not connected to, uh, to, uh, to another uh, nation, if you will, uh, except through marriage. But it is going to face a lot of different issues. For starters, Charles V had to deal with the Protestant Reformation. Some of you remember that in 1517, Martin Luther, the German monk who is upset with the church for selling those get out of purgatory free cards, that, that German monk, Martin Luther, is going to nail his 95 theses to the church door and it ignites a movement that convinces some people to leave the Catholic church and to start new forms of Christianity. Well, some of these people that left the church, they're German princes, all right? And they technically belong to the Holy Roman Empire. So... It's kind of embarrassing for the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who's supposed to be the defender of the church, hence the holy part. But in the end, he's, he's going to be forced to allow these German princes the, uh, the choice and the ability to basically choose the religion of their territory, which just shows us how divided and fragmented the Holy Roman Empire really was. Just look at a map. Like I said, uh, if you perform a quick search, just look at a map of the German principalities from this time period, and you will see that Charles V, or any Holy Roman Emperor for that matter, um, has, has really does not have complete control of the territory, which again proves that Voltaire is correct, that the HRE was never really an empire. Hashtag, sorry, not sorry. It just wasn't an empire. So get over it. Uh, it's like me saying that I was the, the captain of the football team in high school, or that I'm a black belt in karate, or that I personally know Justin Bieber. Just because I say something does not make it true. 
just like your TikTok video, uh, just like your TikTok videos don't make you famous. So um, you need to stop telling people that you're you're basically sponsored because you're not. You know who you are. Okay. So with this as the background, you can understand that the world that Charles V inherits was already pretty chaotic. When Charles V came to power as the Holy Roman Emperor, he was already the King of Spain. So this makes him one of, if not the most powerful leader in Europe. Now, Charles is also known as Charles I when he takes over as King of Spain, but moving forward, most historians are going to refer to him as Charles V once he inherits the, the title, the Holy Roman Emperor. So at this point, what you need to fully understand is that, that Charles is incredibly powerful. To say it another way, he's, he's a big deal. He's got money, he's got fame, he's got territory. All right, he's got it all. So moving forward in 1520, Emperor Charles is going to state, and I'm going to be quoting here directly from him. So Emperor Charles stated, quote, at last, empire has been conferred on me by the single consent of Germany with God, as I deem it, willing and commanding. The Spanish Imperium, with the Balearics and Sardinia, with the Sicilian kingdoms, with a great part of Italy, Germany, and France, and with another, as I might say, gold-bearing worlds, he's referring to the Americas at that point, all these are hardly able to exist or be maintained unless I link Spain with Germany and add the name of Caesar to that king of Spain, end quote. This quote shows us that Charles actually really wants an empire, and he's not afraid to share his relief that he's finally got his own empire. Next, he brings up God, which shows us that he believes in his right to rule, which comes directly from God. And if you're a subject of Spain or the Holy Roman Empire, you're not about to challenge the word of God. This, this shows us um, that, he that, that Charles believes in what is known as divine right, all right? Divine right refers to the idea that a king or a queen has the permission uh, to rule over a nation or empire because God has granted them that right. Therefore, a monarch can pretty much do whatever they want um, because their constant reasoning is that God has given them the permission to do that. So think of it like this. Remember when your parents would tell you to do something and ask you um, – you know, like to clean your room or clean the bathroom, whatever, whatever it is. And your immediate response is why, why should I have to do that? The classic response from your parents then is quote, because I said so, end quote. So think of it like that. All right. But the reality is divine right is similar to that, but it's also a little bit different. All right. People may ask, why does Charles or any king for that matter during this time period get to be the king? And the king's response would then be because God said so. And I'm pretty sure that's where the conversation is going to end. All right. Who at that time period is going to have the guts, you know, uh, during the Spanish Inquisition, during all these uh, incredibly powerful monarchs, who's going to have the guts to continue to push the issue and question the king or queen as to why they have the right to rule? All right. No one's going to question God during this time period. So unlike your parents, Charles and other kings would literally execute anyone who challenged their authority. But maybe your parents could at least start with taking your cell phones the next time you ask why. So parents, if you are listening, please take the cell phones. Please. All right. So that brings us to our last point uh, about the quote. Charles in this quote is also bragging about the lands he now has. He's like humble bragging, right? So he talks about the idea that he owns Spain. He also drops the fact that he owns part of Italy, France, and Germany. And he also brags that he owns colonies in places like the New World and the Philippines. 
This guy is basically a boss, and he's letting everyone know that he's a boss. All right? So um, this brings me, however, to the rapper-philosopher Notorious B.I.G., who once said, and I quote, the more money we come across, the more problems we see, end quote. So, and, and as we're going to see, Charles V's world is going to become more and more complicated the bigger it grows. So even though he's gaining more land, he's gaining more money, he's also gaining with that a more complicated world, a more difficult world to manage. So remember that. Just because you got money, just because you have land, doesn't mean that you're always going to necessarily be happier, that your life is going to be easier. So eventually the Protestant Reformation, battles and wars with the Ottoman Empire, constant warfare inside of Europe with other nations, and just the pressures of managing such a massive empire are going to exhaust Charles V. And he is convinced that the best thing for him to do is to abdicate the throne. Abdicate means to give up the throne willingly. So he's going to step down. He's going to basically enter retirement. So not only does Charles V give up the throne, but the guy then joins a monastery. So think about that. Think about that. Think about the fact that he's so stressed that his better option is to join a monastery where he's going to spend the rest of his life in quiet reflection, prayer. He's going to live with other monks. He's going to deny himself any sort of pleasures or luxuries. All right. He's going to eat basic food. All right. And this basically sounds like the, the opposite of any retirement that I want personally. So we will begin part two next after we hear a word from our sponsor. Part two, like father, like son. So Charles V is going to abdicate his throne. He's going to step down as we've already talked about. And when he does this, he is going to split his empire into two parts. Charles is going to give the Holy Roman Empire part of his empire, if you will. He's going to give those lands to his brother, Ferdinand, who, um, who is then going to become the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, Ferdinand is a complicated guy who at the time was Charles's right-hand man for all German affairs. So he, he is the logical choice here. Uh, upon inheriting the, the Holy Roman Empire, what you have to understand is that it, it sounds really cool at first, like all of a sudden you're going to become the Holy Roman Emperor, but then you start to realize like when you sit in that throne, I imagine kind of like our presidents today, like you don't really know the job until you sit in the Oval Office. But back then, when you sit on that throne, you realize that the Holy Roman Empire is completely divided between these lords and these German princes, and that everybody is is refusing to work together, and no one wants to come together. No one really respects your authority. So it's almost impossible to maintain control over the Holy Roman em uh, Empire. So as Holy Roman Emperor, you're, you just don't have the authority that that you think you do, or that like a, a king in France or a king in Spain would have over their people. So over time, the one lesson that Ferdinand is going to have to learn is that he's going to have to pick and choose his battles. First, um, we can see this when he begins to make peace when dealing with questions about religion. He's going to make um, deals with Lutherans and Protestants throughout his career. Next, and, and probably his biggest issue, Ferdinand is going to realize that the moment that he conquers one of his enemies, there is somebody else always waiting in the wings to kind of pick up the battle and fight him for, for control or um, to challenge his authority. So part of this is because the Holy Roman uh, uh, Empire and basically what would be you know considered Germany today all right, is centrally located in, inside of Europe, right? So once again, it, it sounds great to be centrally located, but the reality is you are completely surrounded at all times by potential enemies. 
And the last time I checked, to be surrounded by your enemies is typically a bad thing. So we're going to address Fernadan um, and the German states later on when we discuss the Thirty Years' War, when we do the episode about the German states and how they survived during the Age of Absolutism. So to give you a little preview about the Thirty Years' War and the German states, um, what you need to know right now is that I need you to imagine a conflict that lasts 30 years and is going to wipe out more than the third of a country's population. Can't help but think of the words of John Lennon here when he stated, um, you know, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. I have nothing against religion, but I do have something against a religion being used to fuel a war that's going to wipe out millions of people, most of whom who are, you know, most of whom are innocent. So we're going to get back on track now to what Charles V is going to do to the rest of his empire, um, and we're going to find out what happens to Spain uh, after he quit and uh, stepped down. So when Charles V abdicates the throne, he gives um, Spain to his son, Philip II. He also gives Philip II the Netherlands, southern Italy, and all the colonies that Spain owned in the New World, um, as well as throughout the other parts of the world like the Philippines. So for those of you who are like, damn, that's a lot of property. Well, you would be correct. If, um, if, if Philip II's property was featured on HGTV, he would basically be the network. He would be every single television show on that network. But I'm not sure any of you actually watch TV anymore. I'm not even sure if any of you get that reference, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care. I thought it was a funny reference. So anyway, Philip II, he's about 29 years old when he comes to power, and he's going to be king for 42 years, which is a pretty decent amount of time uh, to be king. He was considered to be hardworking, religious, and a king who lived very simply. He's uh, almost compared to like a monk. All right, so he lives that simply that he's compared to like a monk, which is especially unique when you compare Philip II to other kings of the time period. For example, like uh, King Louis XIV of France, who's going to live like a completely obnoxious lifestyle, spending money like it's going out of style. Uh, compared to him, Philip II is, is almost monk-like. So Philip II is going to take the achievements of his grandparents and his father to the next level. He is able to get every single part of his government to fall under his complete control. Whether it was taxation, lawmaking, or the military, Philip II is able to consolidate his power until he was the most powerful person in his empire and one of the most feared people in Europe and probably the world. However, when you're on top or you're the biggest kid on the block, everybody wants to see you knocked down. Think of like the, uh, the New England Patriots or the Yankees. People, regardless of their team, they are going to cheer any team that plays the Patriots or the Yankees in hopes that they see the Yankees or the Patriots lose. Spain and Philip II, they're on top, but everyone who is in Europe and basically around the world wants to see them hurt, wants to see Spain lose. They want to see Philip II fall. So to begin with, Philip viewed himself as the defender of the Catholic Church, and he's going to do everything in his power to protect his religion. Philip's religion is both a blessing and a curse. His religion makes him incredibly devout, like we just talked about. He's compared to a monk. He's uh, extremely focused, meditates, all right? But at the same time, in addition to being hardworking, his religion is also going to cause him to make decisions that are going to affect his empire uh, in the long run, okay? So long-term effects based off of uh, very quick decisions that were based on religion. So as a result of this, Philip declares war on other religions, specifically the Protestant faith faiths that appeared during his father's time period. In order to help him fight the Protestants, Philip's, uh, Philip is going to support what's known as the Inquisition, 
All right. So this is that that church organization within um, it's like a, almost like a court system with inside of the church and their their main job with Spanish forces and the Catholic Church in general are to hunt down anyone that was deemed to be a heretic. Heretics are defined as a person who believes or practices something different than the accepted beliefs of the time period. For example, Jews, Muslims, outspoken women and even defiant Christians could be labeled heretics. The problems with labels like this is that the, the labels can become weapons, and um, they they can sometimes be used to to accuse someone's enemy or even a, a neighbor of being a heretic or a witch. Uh, basically, in order to to settle a score or to to rid yourself of of competition or someone you just simply don't like. So the label during this time period of heretic is very very dangerous. Okay, just so we're clear, there there are no witches. All right. However, the Inquisition is going to execute thousands of people, including many, many women, um, simply because they were labeled heretics. It's a, it's a very dangerous label. So in addition to the religious troubles at home, Philip had to face um, major threats in the Mediterranean Sea, specifically from the Ottoman Empire. In the Mediterranean Sea, the major threat to Spanish power was the Ottoman Navy. But Philip was able to score a major victory when his naval forces and those of his Italian allies defeated the Ottoman Navy in 1571 at the Battle of Lepanto. This battle, uh, it doesn't destroy the Ottoman Empire, even though some people would say it weakens it. But I'm going to be honest with you, it does weaken the, Ottomans, uh, the Ottoman Empire's navy and allow Spain to main con maintain control over um, its territories in the Mediterranean Sea. However, Philip and his Christian allies, they're going to make this battle out to be this huge deal. Think like a um, Christian propaganda machine, and they're going to make this battle, like I said, out to be a, um, something probably much larger than it actually was. Now, in addition to battling the Ottoman Empire, Philip struggled to keep control over the Netherlands. Now, before we begin this section, please feel free to find a map of the Netherlands and follow along. During Philip's time period, the areas of Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands were probably the richest parts of the Spanish Empire. This area was well known for its manufactured goods, including textile mills, and, and basically trade in general. It's bringing in millions upon millions of dollars to Philip's treasury. However, the people of the Netherlands, they absolutely hate the high taxes that Philip is making them pay. They eventually rebelled against Philip's taxes and his use of the Inquisition. In 1581, the northern areas, known as the Dutch Netherlands, they're going to declare their independence, even though they would not be completely independent until 1648. The more southern regions, they're going to remain Catholic. And as a result of that, because they're Catholic, they're going to stay part of the Spanish Empire. And this is going to bring us to part three, our final chapter. Part three, the Armada sets sail. As we can see, Philip is pretty aggressive in his defense of his empire and his Catholic faith. At the same time, the Dutch Netherlands um, are declaring – so basically at the same time that the Dutch, uh, the Dutch Netherlands are declaring their independence, Philip begins to turn his attention to Queen Elizabeth I of England. Queen Elizabeth had supported the Protestant rebels of the Netherlands, and this is obviously going to, to make Philip extremely angry, right? Now, in addition – to what Queen Elizabeth is doing in the Netherlands, she's also allowing some of her ship captains to attack Spanish ships that were returning from the New World, and these ships are loaded with, with millions, in some cases billions of dollars in, in modern-day terms, of gold and silver. So to be clear, Queen Elizabeth is allowing her navy, essentially, to attack Spanish ships that are loaded with, with millions and billions of dollars worth of gold and silver. So if you're in England, 
to you, these ship captains like Francis Drake, they're seen as heroes who are stealing Spanish gold in order to protect England because under the theory of mercantilism, if England could keep money from Spain, then Spain would have theoretically less power and less money and would be less of a threat to England. However, to the Spanish, because we, we have to remember their, their version of this history, to the Spanish, those same captains who are stealing from them, stealing their gold, stealing their silver from the new world, they're known as piratas or pirates, and they uh, essentially deserve to die. So if you're Spanish, you believe that these English captains are pirates, and they deserve to die. So with each Spanish ship that was attacked, Spain and England are coming closer and closer to war. So in order to stop England, Philip is going to order the construction of a great fleet known as the Spanish Armada. You've probably at some point heard of the Spanish Armada. I always think of uh, the scene in Billy uh, Billy Madison where uh, he's testing for his his history exam, and um, you've got Chris Farley, and I'll let you look it up on YouTube. Absolutely hysterical scene. Um, I don't think you'll ever be able to hear the Spanish Armada the same way again. So do yourself a favor, pause podcast, go look at that video. Hilarious. So this, quote, uh, invincible armada, as it was known, uh, set sail in 1588 and contained more than 130 warships, 20,000 soldiers, 2,400 pieces of artillery, cavalry, horses, and even elements of the Spanish Inquisition. This is an invasion. It's an invasion force that is designed to punish England and bring England back to the Catholic religion. However, while in the English Channel, the Spanish Armada is going to come up against the smaller and faster British ships. And these uh, smaller and faster British ships are equipped with longer range artillery. So they're smaller, they're faster, and they can shoot from further distances. So they don't have to get up close and personal like the Spanish want to. The Spanish are designed, their, their ships at least, are designed to fight up close and personal, hand-to-hand combat, and that's not how the British want to fight. All right, You have to play to your, your strengths. In this case, the British were better off sailing around the ships, shooting further away, and trying to create chaos amongst the Spanish vessels. So overall, what you need to understand is I don't, I don't want to give you the impression that the battle is going to be completely decided as this naval engagement, ship to ship combat. Rather, the Spanish Armada is going to be forced to give up the invasion, and they're going to have to sail around England. Think um, sailing around like what is today modern day Scotland, all right? And they're going to sail around Scotland and essentially the poor weather that the Spanish Armada runs into, that's going to finish off the Spanish Armada. That's going to, it's going to destroy those Spanish ships. So you could make an argument that the, the poor weather, the English weather, does more damage than the English, the, uh, the English ships. So the, the uh, Armada at this point is going to be forced back to Spain after losing two-thirds, 66% of its ships are going to be lost during this time period. So just like today, if we were to lose two-thirds of our navy, our country would be in, in serious, serious problems, okay? So Spain is no different. So this is pretty much the height of Spanish power and the Spanish empire. The cost of the Armada, its loss, and the continued warfare drains Spain's treasury and exhausts its leadership. After Philip, most of the rulers of Spain were unable to rule effectively, and Spain's empire um, becomes too expensive to defend and to maintain. In addition, the religious warfare, the Inquisition, and the removal of Jews, Muslims, and other groups from Spain, uh, from Spain creates long-term problems that Spain just can't recover from. The desire for Catholic unity is going to cost Spain 
intelligent people who, in the end, may have helped Spain be successful. But instead, the bigotry and violence simply hurt Spain. Lastly, as the biggest kid on the block, Spain was attacked on multiple fronts by multiple enemies, such as the English, the French, and the Dutch, who are also going to get involved in international trade, in empire building, and who are going to build massive navies that can compete with Spain's. So simply put, Spain could no longer hold on to their top position. It's, it's time as uh, Europe's most powerful, powerful empire was over. So I'm now going to leave you um, with some questions to consider. So here we go. Number one, how did the age of absolutism shape our modern world? Number two, was it necessary for Europe to experience absolute rulers like Charles V and Philip II in order to bring about the democratic movements that will occur later on? Number three, are there lessons that can be learned from Spain's treatment of various groups which can be applied to modern government policies? So that brings us to our conclusion. So uh, I will leave you with a quote by Abraham Lincoln, which I think is fitting for this episode. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power, end quote. As always, I encourage each of you to seek the truth and continue your pursuit of history. Thank you for listening to this episode of Where Was This in History Class? If you like what you've heard, please leave a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe and share. Thank you.